You've been listening to the weekly sermon from the Vine Church in Madison, Wisconsin, a spirit-filled family that makes disciples and plants churches among neighbors and nations through declaration and demonstration. For more information and service times, check out our website at www.thevinemadison.org. So good to have you all here. My name is Zach. I'm one of the pastors here. If you um, are a visitor, we want to say welcome and we want to say thank you for coming this morning to the Vine. We'd love to meet you. Uh, For visitors and those that are not visitors, I just want to remind where we've been in our preaching the last few weeks. We are in a series called Gender for the Glory of God. And today we're going to talk about how gender is expressed, one way that gender is expressed in leadership of local churches. Okay, that's what we're going to talk about today in the, in the book of 1 Timothy. So if you have a Bible, uh, while I'm giving some introductory remarks here, we might want to open it up to Matt, I'm sorry, uh, 1 Timothy in the New Testament. Two more weeks in our series. Next week we're going to talk about um, the purpose that God created for sex. And so why did he create it? Why did he say it's good? Just want to give you a heads up on that. If you have kids in the room, um, you may not be ready to have that conversation with them or not. So just keep that in mind for next week. And then finally, we're going to look at just this whole issue of living in a culture that might not, in most cases, probably definitely not, unless it's a Christian culture or a culture that... uh, acknowledges the authority of God's word, a culture that looks at what we've been teaching the last few weeks and says maybe at best that's not understandable, at worst abhorrent, or some would say bigoted, hateful. And we want to acknowledge that and just think about in terms of Christian discipleship, what does it mean to live in a culture where the things that we see in Scripture um, are not readily embraced want to remind you as well that we have a Slack channel specifically for this sermon series. Um, it's called Gender Sermon Series. I think um, you can add yourself to that Slack channel. It's a public channel. And that's just for questions for the elders. Um, we welcome any type of discussion there in reference to these sermons. So let me um, start off this morning by saying this. I think it's important that all of us recognize that we have different filters through which we sift the information that we have. Another way to say it is we all have different lenses through which we look at what the Bible might say. And especially how it comes to gender in the family, in the church family, in the culture. Another way to say it is we, we all have baggage. We, have all, we all have baggage that we bring to these issues. Like for some of us, we were raised in homes where kind of the themes that we've been talking about was, was normative. And you're sitting there going, well, what's the big deal? Sounds good. For some of us, it's the opposite. And in the past, you know, you've seen maybe men who led with abuse by being overly harsh or critical, or maybe the opposite, being passive or lazy. And they just check out. Many of us have experiences of observing or maybe experiencing yourself a woman at the hands of a man who does not love like Jesus loves the church does not lead sacrificially. And that's the, one of the pieces of baggage that you carry to this issue. Some of us have seen a destructive form of feminism where the, desire to, where the desire is there to maybe just simply replace 
one authoritarian male with an authoritarian female. Many of us have experiences with toxic masculinity. Many of us have experiences with toxic femininity. No one's listening. No one is humble. No one is seeking the good of the other. So we all come with baggage. We all come with our own lenses or filters to this issue, to these issues we've been talking about in the last few weeks. And I think it's very important for us just to, again, be in the habit of realizing I have a context that I bring to these issues. I have baggage that I bring to these issues. And you can't be existing as a human being on this planet without that. It's impossible. So then what do we do? What we do is we do our best to submit all of those things to what we find in plain reading of Scripture. How can I take my baggage and not just try to hold on to it and make it authoritative, but place it underneath the authority of God's word and have it be relativized by God's word. Like we realize that this sermon today is hard for some people. Um, it's hard for some people in the, in the cultural context that we, we live in, but I think it's important to recognize this. The Bible confronts every culture. The Bible confronts every culture. And this sermon in a lot of places in the world today and this sermon throughout history would not be hard for a lot of people. But you know what would be hard? Like what's really easy for us when we read in light of our culture is forgive your enemies. Like, I mean, easy. It's not easy, but we like that. The, the concept of forgiveness is something that... Um, is, is American in the sense of like, I, th I feel like we forgive pretty easy compared to other cultures. If you come from an honor-shame culture, we, we live, I'm, I won't get into the sociology of this, but sociologists would say that we live, and missiologists would say that we live in like a, a, um, a uh, guilt-innocence culture. And like, for example, our team in North Africa, they live in an honor-shame culture. And if someone offended, has offended you, for you to forgive them, that can be seen as very, very shameful. So you can understand why you have, you know, revenge, cycles of revenge that happen in the Middle East. Because forgiveness is offensive. Forgiveness is offensive. So when, when, when people read, turn the other cheek, in Matthew chapter 5, that confronts people's culture. That, that verse, man, we preach that verse and everyone, and everyone gets an amen. Yeah, I, I like Jesus. I like what he says about that. Other cultures say that's crazy. And those same cultures might look at what we're going to talk about today and go, that, what's the big deal? All that to say is it's just an example of we all come from a context. And just because we might read this this morning and go, wow, that's, that's kind of crazy. Well, it may be because of the culture that we swim in. And it's important for us to acknowledge that. Everybody swims in a certain culture, and the Bible's going to have something to say to every culture, right? So it boils down to this. If you're Christian here today, does our faith shift and evolve based on how a culture shifts and evolves? All cultures shift and evolve. They go like this, up and down. But the claim of the Bible is that kingdoms can rise and fall, but God's word says that my word, the word of the Lord, stands forever. So, 
Again, are we constrained by what we find here in God's word? Or are we just going to shift with how the culture shifts? The culture says that forgiving your enemies doesn't work. Well, then we'll say it doesn't work. If the culture says, man, there's no such thing as a distinction in gender, then we'll just shift with that. See, at the Vine, we're trying to take all of our cultural assumptions and our lenses and our baggage and place it underneath the authority of God's word and then live our lives from that standpoint. Now, that doesn't mean that you can't be a Christian and disagree with some of the conclusions that we'll have today. That's not what we're saying. There are Christians that disagree with what you're going to hear me say today. But just, I just want us to make sure that we're, if, if there's a disagreement, we're not disagreeing because of cultural pressure. We're disagreeing with Bibles open, right? We're disagreeing with Bibles open. We're not necessarily taking some philosophy and imposing it on the Bible or taking some cultural expectation and imposing it on the Bible. But we're seeking to have the Bible shape those things. Okay? We want the Bible to shape our convictions and not the whims of culture. One other thing, and then we'll get into the text. Um, just as a disclaimer, this sermon today is going to just be more of like a raw teaching message. Sometimes there can be um, gnarly topics from our perspective that demand putting this together with this and this Bible affects this Bible, and we're going to interpret Scripture with Scripture. And there's more connections that have to be seen. And so typically, we try to do like a healthy dose in balance of application and illustration and explanation when it comes to preaching. But today, it's going to be just a lot more explanation because of the topic. So just know, come back next week. I'll share some silly stories about my kids as an il- illustration or whatever. Okay, but today is not that day. Um, uh, it's going to be more just kind of straight teaching today. So here's, here's the question that maybe you might be asking, uh, that the culture would definitely be asking, that we're going to seek to address today. Why is it that at the Vine we have male-only elders? Why is it at the Vine we have uh, eldership be gender-specific? It's a good question. So let's take a look at the book of 1 Timothy. Just open up 1 Timothy. We're going to be jumping around a little bit in 1 Timothy, okay? But before we seek to answer this question and look at a text in detail that addresses that question, we have to back up. And again, good Bible interpreters always understand context. So what's the context of this book of 1 Timothy? Okay, so the context is Paul has planted a church in Ephesus, or churches in Ephesus. And Timothy is sent there by Paul as his protege to make sure things go well with these church plants in Ephesus. And so Paul is writing to Timothy and he gives instructions for what's supposed to take place in these churches that have been planted. So he's got kind of two main overarching points that he wants to make sure Timothy gets that he's very explicit about that helps us understand our text in detail this morning. So look at chapter one, verse three. My Bible heading says here, warning against false teachers. And that's what is happening. Okay. Verse three of chapter one, Paul's writing to Timothy and he says, as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus. Why? 
Well, here's why, Timothy, so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. So there's false teaching flying around, and, and Paul says to Timothy, you got to deal with this. Don't leave Ephesus until you deal with it, okay? The, the, the health of the local church is a big deal, and one of the main threats is false teaching, okay? So uh, verse 4, nor uh, to teach any different doctrine nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. All right? So Paul wants Timothy to know that we have to deal with false teaching in these new church plants. And then his second agenda is found in in chapter 3, starting in verse 14. Flip over to that if you need to. And so he's just gotten done explaining some things, and he says, I hope to come to you soon, verse 14, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, here's what I want you to know. You may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. So big picture, what does Paul want Timothy to know? He wants him to know that for the sake of these new church plants, false teaching is a big deal. You got to deal with it. And number two, I want you to know how to structure church life. See it there in verse 15. If I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. So what should the local church look like? The gathered church, the visible public church. So before he writes this verse in chapter 3, it's important to know that he just got done explaining something very key to the structure of the local church. And that is how to raise up leaders. Right? Organizations are only as strong as their leaders oftentimes. And he's talked about raising up elders. And he's talked about raising up deacons. And they should function for the blessing of the local church. How to behave in the household of God, verse 14. Right? So that's kind of the background of 1 Timothy. How should the local church be structured so that it can be strong and healthy and combat false teaching? So with that in mind, you're with me? Uh, We're going to look at our text for today. Chapter 2, starting in verse 11. He says this. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she should, she is to remain quiet. All right, so verse 11 and verse 12. We have on the one hand what women are told to do. And on the other hand, they're told what not to do. So what's what's the positive side? What's the admonition to do something? Verse 11, let a woman learn. That's the positive part. Men and women are called to learn. But here he's saying, women, let them learn. So in Jewish history, this is a Jewish context. All these converts to Christianity in the early church mainly came out of Judaism, although there was uh, Gentiles as well, of course. But in a Jewish kind of context, Paul was Jewish. Women oftentimes weren't allowed to learn theology. They weren't allowed. They were excluded. And so Paul's saying something That's maybe a little radical, given their context. No, a woman is called to learn, right? 
Paul says that Christian church, men and women both should be learning. We don't segregate learning by gender. So where did he get this? Well, he obviously got this from Jesus. Now, Jesus only had 12, like his leaders, his, his close 12 were all male. I think there's something to pay attention to there that I'm not going to get into today. But Jesus had more disciples than just those 12. The Bible's clear about that. It talks about the three, the 12, the 72. We see a clear uh, example of mixed genders of, of discipleship, for, of, of Jesus' first disciples in Mary and Martha. Mary and Martha are some of the most famous disciples of Jesus, sitting at Jesus' feet, listening to him. So Jesus had learners, disciples, that were men and women. But Paul is saying that in the gathered church, the, for, the formal gathered church, that as a woman she's to learn with a posture of submissiveness and teachability. Now, that needs to be explained. We can see in a second why, what he's, what he's going to be talking about. But let me back up, and just as another disclaimer, when it comes to this word submissiveness or teachability. In one sense, the Bible calls all members of the local church, people that are filled with the Spirit of God, to have a posture of submission. So you can look at Ephesians 5, starting in verse 18 and following. Paul just lays out some fruits of what it means to be spirit-filled. Be thankful. Be singing. And be submissive. See Ephesians 5, 18 and beyond. Thankfulness. A singing posture, like celebrating and submission. So he... Paul's writing to the church in Ephesus in, in Ephesians 5 and saying, this is just the fruit of the Spirit for everybody. Everybody's called to be submissive as just like a fruit of the Spirit, right? In addition, we can see in, in, in chapter 13 of the book of Hebrews, you'll see it here on the screen, the author of Hebrews writes to the church there and says, obey your leaders and submit to them. Notice he doesn't say just women submit. He says everyone here. Male, female, obey your leaders and submit to them. So he's talking about the local church here. For they're keeping a watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. So not just for women, this is for the whole church. So in a wide global sense of Christian discipleship, those who are spirit-filled, the assumption here is that everyone's going to have a posture of submission. Just as a fruit of the Spirit, Okay. But Paul is talking here in 1 Timothy in this context about the specifics of authoritative teaching in the gathered church. So let's take a look at this a little more. There's nuances here for the gathered church. Verse 12, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Remember, this is in the gathered church, okay? So it could easily be translated, I do not, based on the context, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man in the gathered church. Rather, she's to remain quiet. So, questions that logically flow from this. Question number one. Does this mean that a woman shouldn't teach in any sense? Well, we would say that the Bible says no. And that seems very clear. 
So just let me give you some examples. Paul commends the fact that Timothy was taught by his mother and his grandmother. We see that in the opening, uh, I think it's in, I don't, let's see here. I, I don't have it memorized, but it's in the first chapter of First Timothy or Second Timothy. He, Paul says, it's great that you were taught by your mother and grandmother the things of the faith. That's women teaching. Paul says, awesome. The Bible instructs women to teach younger women, older women to teach younger women. That's in Titus. That's just normal, according to Paul. We see another uh, fascinating scenario in the book of Acts where there's a married couple that are Christians, Priscilla and Aquila, and they pull Apollos aside. Apollos was an influential teacher. A lot of people think that he wrote the book of Hebrews, but he was in the process of developing his theology, and they pulled him aside because they thought he was getting a little off track, and they corrected some of his theology. Well, they did that correction together, male and female, correcting a, a church leader who was maybe getting a little off in his theology. And the Bible says that was a good thing. In, in, in Corinth, we can read about the, first, uh, the book of First Second Corinthians. There's a, the gathered church in Corinth, and women are called to prophesy, men and women. And that's, a, that's not teaching per se, but it is a form of speaking and communicating, and that's celebrated. Women prophesying. So no, this does not rule out all the different types of teaching we could come up with, Right? So we have to think with nuance here. What kind of teaching has Paul, does Paul have in mind? Well, again, like we've emphasized over and over, he's talking in this context about the gathered church, the household of God. This is very important. And those examples that I give, that I just gave, are not necessarily the gathered church. So what is he getting at here? Well, I think when he's talking about teaching, Verse 12, look at it. I do not permit a woman to teach. Okay, so then we stop and go, Paul, what do you mean by teaching? Because there's all these other examples that say that women teaching is great. He's like, okay, well, let's look at the context. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. So when asking what kind of teaching is this, the most natural way to see this is through the, the word that follows the word teaching. It's exercise authority. So, for Paul, there's a kind of teaching that is authoritative, and there's a kind of teaching that's not. There's a kind of teaching that's authoritative in the gathered church where other kinds of teaching or sharing or communicating or giving feedback might not carry the same weight for the gathered church. So to sum up, Paul is forbidding a certain kind of authoritative teaching in the gathered church. So what is this kind of authoritative teaching? Well, we would say it's teaching from what the Bible calls and designates elders. Elders. So it, the, the question is, who does this authoritative teaching? The Bible says it's elders. So to understand this, we have to, again, look a little more broadly in the context of 1 Timothy, because he talks about who these elders are and what they do. So flip over to chapter 5, verse 17. He talks about elders, and he just describes their job description. He says this in 5.17. Let the elders who rule well, there's 
one thing that they do. They rule. Another translation could be govern. The elders who rule or govern well, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. So we see here that Paul just describes elder job description. They govern and they teach. The book of Acts chapter 6 also says that they are to be praying. They rule, they govern, they pray. So the implication is that elders are the ones who rule or govern, and they're also the ones who teach. The assumption here is that this is what elders do, govern and teach. So one of the main jobs of elders is to oversee the the authoritative teaching. You could say the, the ruling, the governing teaching of the gathered church. So much so connected to 1 Timothy that it protects the church from false teaching. See that? So we would say elders, and maybe at times elders in training, should be the ones who teach in the gathered church. Like like this kind of teaching. Like this is what God's word says, Vine Church. Like this is the boundaries of what we believe, Vine Church. This is how we are going to discern true and false teaching Vine Church. We know that this realm of authoritative teaching in the gathered church is for elders. Because elders are called to be ruling and teaching. Governing. Ruling sounds so like heavy-handed. But, I mean, that's just the biblical word. But a better translation for us would be governing. Okay? Um, And we know as well that elders are called to be men. So you can just look real quick. You look at uh, chapter 3, verse 2. Therefore, an overseer, same word as elder, same word as pastor. The Bible uses those interchangeably. Same thing, overseer, pastor, elder, all the same thing. Um, verse 2, therefore, an overseer or elder pastor must be above reproach the husband of one wife. So he doesn't say wife of one husband. He says husband of one wife. He could have certainly said wife of one husband, but he doesn't. He just says husband of one wife. Some people say, well, that's just because Paul didn't want to rock the cultural boat. And at that time, you know, that never would have been acceptable. But I just, that's not persuasive to me because we see over and over again that Paul's not afraid to rock the cultural boat. Um, I mean, just calling husbands to love their wives as, as Christ loved the church, like we saw last week or two weeks ago, that's a radical claim that would have been way against the grain of the culture. So I'm not convinced that Paul's not, that Paul's um, just trying to keep the peace culturally. No, I think. Um, that's not how he is at all. So in essence, this text in 1 Timothy is saying that there should be a desire to submit to elders who are the ones who teach, just like wives submit to their husbands like we saw last week. So this is the foundation for why we have male-only elders at the vine. But Paul says a little more here that I think is really instructive. It's, he, it's like he says, here's what I want you to do, and then here's why. So look at verse 13. So here's his reasoning. This is his logic. So let's start again in verse 12. I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet in the gathered church. Um, 
And we know, again, that's not like a universal quietness. It's more of a quietness of heart, like a posture of submission. Why? For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. So Paul here is referencing what we've talked about a lot. And you've heard me say, we're going to talk about this a few weeks ago, the order of creation. And this is where Paul references the order of creation being a big deal. Like Paul believes that the creation account is authoritative. I think that's really important to note. And it's good. God created the man first and the woman second, is what he's saying. That's just clear in Genesis 2. And here's another thing that's clear in Genesis 2 that I think gets underemphasized. God gave his first authoritative word. God gave his first um, kind of don't do this kind of a command to Adam alone. Okay? So he says to Adam, don't eat of that tree. Don't eat of that tree. And the implication is that he's going to teach his wife what God said. God's word was the responsibility of Adam. But then what we see is that Satan hates God's created order. And so it's no surprise then that Satan doesn't go to Adam first because he wants to reverse what God has said is good. He wants to reverse the created order that God has ordained. And so he goes to Eve first. He goes to Eve first. And Adam was just passive and didn't do anything about this false teaching that was coming at his wife from the serpent. And Eve sought to operate independently from her husband. So essentially, Paul's not saying here that, that sin was all Eve's fault. We know that for sure that he doesn't believe that. You can see that in Romans 5 where he just lays it basically at the feet of Adam. But what Paul does here is he's saying there's something to maleness and femaleness when it comes to handling the authoritative word of God in the gathered church family. And he's saying this is good and for a blessing in the family of God. Adam was supposed to be the guardian of God's word and make sure that that, would, that seed would just be planted for, for a healthy plant to grow in that first family. And he failed. And Satan suckered him into the opposite. But in God's new family, there's a new Adam. And it's Jesus. And Jesus perfectly succeeded, and he crushed the head of the serpent. Jesus was the perfect male leader. And now, he says, in the gathered church, there should be male leaders that have the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God in them that operate in the same way as protectors of the family of God. Where Adam failed, male elders are called to succeed. Don't listen to false teaching. This is just what Paul's saying to Timothy. Don't listen to false teaching. Timothy, I want you to lead well here. Don't let the, the snake talk to your family. And the implication is elders are going to operate the same way. So another way to say it might be, in the Bible, gender is connected to protection when there is a spiritual threat. Adam failed, but elders as protector of the church, male elders as protectors of the church should be successful and then repent when they fail. So again, we see here that gender is not arbitrary. Gender is not a social construction 
God constructed it. God ordained it. God says that it's good for the marriage, for the family, and for the church family, the church. He has intention for it. And he says it's very good. So two things, and then we'll be done. Real quick, again, I know this raises questions. What about this? What about this? What about this? And have you thought about this? Have you about this? Yes. Um, we want to address those questions. So the, again, the Slack channel is there if you have things you want to discuss. And then secondly, just like we've seen in the last two weeks with gender roles in marriage, I want to commend a similar emotion for us at the Vine. Like even if these things grate against our modern cultural sensibilities, let's remind ourselves that God's word is for our good. God is not out to get us. God is not out to squash us. It's for our blessing. He knows what he's doing. God created gender and he says it's really good. And he created gender-based roles in, in the family, in marriage, for the sake of his glory on display as, as we model Christ and the church. It's beautiful. It's a sign that, po that, that, that points outside of ourselves to the glory of God and the gospel. That's why marriage exists. And he also created gender-based roles for the flourishing of the local church when it comes to eldership. So we believe that as we receive this word today from 1 Timothy, it will help our church be what God wants us to be for the sake of his glory and our joy. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this word that you've given to us in the Bible. Lord, I pray that you would help us live it out. I pray that you would help us receive it with thanksgiving. Lord, I pray there would be a real spirit-filled posture of submission in my heart, in our hearts collectively. Lord, we know that's your will for us. Lord, I pray against pride. I pray against selfishness. Lord, I pray that... Um, I do want to pray for the elders of this church that we would lead not as those who domineer, but those who are an example, like you say in 1 Peter 5. And so, Lord, we want to um, lead that way. We want to lead with love. And we pray that we would um, see that happen. In Jesus' name, amen.